Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Madden. I'm the editor-in-chief and general manager of MMM, and you're listening to the MMM Podcasts. Appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to us. We've got a good one for you today. Got a couple of the folks from uh, Finger Paint with me. Joining me in a conversation about branding will be Brandon Cashin, managing partner of Leaderboard Branding, a finger paint company. And also Roshan Blunt, managing director of 1798, also a finger paint company. Welcome, guys. Thanks for being here. Roshan, can you tell us a little bit about what uh, exactly 1798's role in the, uh, in the finger paint firmament is? Sure. 1798 is a consultancy and we frequently partner with finger paint and provide our own agency services, but we focus really on managed markets um, and managed markets marketing. So what is the information that's required to get to the payers to support um, the commercialization of a product? Great. Thanks. Brennan, you want to tell us a little bit about leaderboard branding? Absolutely. Uh, Leaderboard Branding is a global brand strategy and brand development consultancy. We're probably best known for helping global organizations uh, develop their brand names for products. And specifically in the healthcare and pharmaceutical space, we name a lot of drugs. And uh, that can range from the trade name, non-proprietary generic names. We do a lot of clinical trial branding. And most of the work we do with companies is in their early development of a, of a clinical asset. Great. And that's, that's what we want to talk about here today. We want to talk about uh, building you know, solid brand foundations and solid access uh, to the market because it's such important pillars of any kind of launch. So why don't we just uh, jump right in. Um, Brandon, what do you think the right time to start engaging partners for bringing a product to market is? What uh, and what are you doing early on? I have to I have to think that with naming the work starts uh, from the outset, right? It does. You know, over the last I've been in this space for over twenty five years, and in the last ten years, we've really seen companies shift the activities of naming, branding, thinking about messaging, scientific uh, scientific lexicon, how they talk about their product in development earlier and earlier. We work with companies in phase one helping them understand their non-proprietary naming. What is that generic name or that scientific name that their molecule will uh, be categorized with? And it's you know, a process that you know, 20 years ago was pretty much held in the clinic. It was pretty straightforward. And over time and with the amazing development that our clients are doing, it's become quite complex. Companies are starting much earlier in the process. Uh, Roshan, is that true from your side of the aisle as well? Absolutely. But, you know, Brandon's being modest into where his his organization plays, right? When when I might run run up against Brandon and his team, it also is a lot of work that you have to do with branding when you're, you're still pre-commercialization, but you're thinking about some of those other elements, such as, you know, how might you brand the name of your patient support services, or how might you brand programs that are also very specific to help physicians, particularly when you're dealing with high cost specialty products. So um, the importance of sort of establishing 
what this product is going to be. All of the important components are, are not, not just, as, as Brandon was trying to say, just in that world of FDA and clinical trials. His work goes far further and deeper than that. So he's, he's being a little bit modest in, in the importance of work that's done ahead of launch. And like anything, I have to imagine, the more complicated the task, the more important it is to get started earlier. Is that true? It really is. You know, one of the things we've seen happen more and more is when the health authorities are involved, they're very concerned about drug safety. And if you think about it, the name of a product, you would probably think to yourself, just a layperson, it's not that big of a deal. Whatever the drug is called, it's called. In fact, most lay people, when they talk to me in my personal life, they kind of look at me funny, like you name drugs for companies. And then they think of some of the drug names and they probably think, oh, wow, that's <laughs> interesting job. Uh, but it's, it's really, it's a really scientific process because medication error does happen because of name confusion. So if you think about a pharmacy, especially retail dispensed product that has a very similar name to another product, and you think about pharmacies are dispensing hundreds, sometimes thousands of drugs a day, it very easily could happen where a name could look like another name, especially with penmanship from an orthographic point of view and a doctor who may just have sloppy handwriting Mm -hmm. and a pharmacist misinterprets what the intended drug could be. Well, doctors never have sloppy handwriting. So that's not something that you have to really, really be worried about, is it? You know, that's a big concern with the health authorities. And specifically, you know, the FDA, or as an example, in the early 2000s, they really started to get sensitive to how drugs could be confused because either how the name is spoken and heard and how uh, a name is either written or even now with EMR and how drugs are alphabetized electronically, you click the, the wrong drug because you're moving too quickly, you can imagine what could happen. Just one drug that might be above or below you alphabetically. So there's a lot of science, a lot of research, a lot of uh, the breaking down of how syllables fall, how names are intended to be pronounced versus how they actually are pronounced or would be pronounced. And there's a lot of science that goes into the you know seven or eight letters that ultimately represent the brand name. Does an early start help market access for Sean? It does. I mean, because Brandon, when he's saying health authorities, it's not just from the regulatory side, it's it's also from the payer side. They're looking at the exact same thing, because if there's medication error or problems, the cost is going to fall back on the payer who is actually going to have to now deal with the challenges that are associated. Um, And a lot of our conversations are with pharmacists, hospital pharmacists, everything that goes into that, as well as, as as Verena was saying, is how similar is this product? There, there have been advents and, you know, obviously Brandon went through that whole time that as soon as we would get a client who said, well, it's, it's, it, it's a, a new therapeutic, so we're just going to tack on, you know, XR as, as the extended version. I would, you know, shake my head because I'm not quite sure how that's going to be positioned as a true new therapy. So the importance and the science behind the, the naming of the product is just as important from that regulatory agency and how you're thinking about the downstream effects for medication error and other aspects as it is to market access as we're thinking about cost and implications and access. And, you know, Brandon's joking, but we have had true situations where the name of the product was so complicated that we recommended, you know, the classic of pre-printed tear sheets on prescriptions because we can't have a situation in which 
the wrong medication is dispensed. So that that really is truly the case if you want to make sure that the, the limited pool of funds that we have for, for payer coverage are actually distributed in the right way as opposed to having, having to pay for someone who made a medication mistake. And now we have to correct that through other medications or sources, treatments or therapies. So you've both been doing this for, for quite a while, I assume. Um, are, you, are you making fun of our age? Is no, I was going to say Brandon looks like he's been doing it much longer than you, Roshan. Um, but, but that's okay. Um, people can't see. My point here is that you've both got a lot of experience and, and uh, have a lot of hash marks on this. What, what are things that, in your experience, companies don't think about early in the process that they should be thinking about? I know one thing that comes to mind and actually applies to both Roshan and, and myself is I think clients in today's day and age don't think it takes as much time as it does to get from point A to point Z. A lot of the things that we're doing, if you just look at, I'll take two of the things that we do. If we're naming a clinical trial, I think people are saying to themselves, some clients might say to themselves, oh, that only takes a week or two. And it really takes a lot more time as you move into some of the downstream work socializing internally within a larger organization is one of the biggest time drags that people don't anticipate because they think, oh, once the core team comes to an agreement on a recommendation, it'll be real easy to push through the rest of the organization. And executive teams and extended teams take a lot longer. So, so from, from my perspective, one of the biggest time uh, or one of the biggest challenges is the the unexpected amount of time that some of these activities take both internally to build consensus and agreement and also externally how to go through a process. And oh, by the way, that's if it all goes smoothly. If there's any sort of speed bump or a, a trademark, for example, is not available or a health authority rejects a name, you're adding months, potentially years onto a process that you thought might take weeks or months. And time is money. Time is money and time also affects the downstream activities. So again, I keep going back to some of the, the, the core things that we do. If you don't have an identified brand name for your product, think about all the downstream things that have to wait, packaging, labeling, logo, colors, uh, collateral, go to market strategy, go to market messaging, you know, PI, uh, all of the things that really are almost required to have the name. If you don't have that conditionally approved or approved, it really can jam up a lot of those pre-launch, launch, and, and post, uh, you know, or pre-approval, approval, and post-approval activities. Even, even things as mundane as, uh, or seemingly mundane as color palettes can be, uh, can be held up in, in the Very much. process, right? Very um, much. So you've mentioned a, a whole bunch of different things that people need to be thinking about uh, early on in the process. I'm wondering if, if you can kind of elaborate a little bit on how the specific stuff about a product can impact how you'd, you'd tell a company that they should, should go about going to market or seeking access. Roshan, do you wanna, wanna kick that one off? Sure, no problem. You know, the, the, really the first thing that we look at in, in my particular world is what are the patient demographics? 
to whom is this product ultimately trying to serve? Older populations, younger populations, are there ethnic propensities that we need to be aware of? What's the socioeconomics? I mean, there are some disease states and areas that, that actually skew to a, a higher socioeconomic demographic versus those that, that skew to others. So we always start there because I always think to myself, if Brandon does amazing work with the name and finger pain and, and Bill McKellen come in and do amazing work with the marketing. If I can't get the payers convinced that, that this is an appropriate therapy for this particular patient population, then I've, I've failed my two predecessors who sort of touch, touch the product in a, in a different way. So, so for us, right, it's, it's really important to start with the disease state, but more importantly, who are these patients? What do they look like? What do they go through every day? How much money do they have in the bank account? How difficult is it gonna be for them to access this? What are the other therapies that they're taking? Not only because I need to know if there's gonna be a problem with the names and, and other effects, but what's their total cost of care overall? And from there, then I'm trying to reverse it and understand, just as you said, what are all the marketing implications? What are the naming implications? Because it's real to us if we can't do our job and there's a patient in need and we can't get them the therapy. That's, that's critical to their health. Brandon, do you have a point of view on that? Absolutely. And, you know, the, where I like where Rashawn was going with that, what it's looking basically patient out versus that the patient is at the end of the chain. They're the one getting the drug. Her business and, and, and her team really takes that patient centricity view to say, what is the patient? Now let's work around it. And I think we do, we try and kind of do a lot of the same. How can we bring something to the table, whether it's a product in a rare disease that there is no current treatment? I've done a lot of work in rare disease in my space or in my career. And it's one of the most rewarding areas because you talk to these patients and these caregivers and these families, and they basically raise their hand and say, we want anything. And so it really does inspire maybe a different view of how you might name or brand a product, how you might bring messaging or disease state branding, colors even. You know, if, if a logo and a color palette is more patient-centric, more patient-friendly versus being something that's more abstract and corporate feeling, there are definitely patient kind of views, especially in a lot of these disease states where there is nothing that currently exists. So, so we've really tried to, you know, kind of take some of that philosophy that, that Roshan in 1798 have that says, if we look at the patient first and we kind of build proof points and deliverables around that patient and around those needs, you're also going to get a lot of those product benefits because that's why drug companies are bringing products to the market. If it doesn't work, if it's not better, if it's a me too, it's going to be really hard to build a commercial strategy unless you're a branded generic. So we really do try and kind of encourage the, 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 our clients to think about the patients as they think about the brand, even with some of the more complex parts of what we do that maybe aren't as much patient or caregiver centric. So let's talk about that commercialization process a little bit. Let's say that uh, I'm a client and I've signed up with finger paint you know, your uh, client services people and your business development people have, uh, have done a good job. And now I'm coming in the front door and I'm being onboarded. Uh, and as part of this whole process, who do I talk to first? Brandon, am I talking to you? Am I talking to Rashawn first? Are you tag teaming me? How's it work? Let's, <laughs> let's, go, to, let's yeah. go to the sausage factory. Yeah, it's me. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're 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 a we're a heck of a tag team. Um, <laughs> and for a lot of our clients, it it most of the time they're engaging us right around the same times, which I think is why we get along so well because there's a lot of shared kind of understanding about how a client thinks in some of these early clinical development, clinical stages of development, because they think differently. They're still almost a clinical commercial blend. Yeah. A lot of times when the AOR business and the advertising agencies, PR firms start working with a client, it's completely a commercial team. They're thinking launch, they're thinking post-launch. And we're getting involved when launch is still kind of a, a candle in the wind. We <laughs> really want this to work, but they're in phase one, phase two. So we will a lot of times tag team and, and work together because the client need and even the decision-making teams are very similar from a, you know, a title and uh, an area of responsibility. And, and one thing, you know, you said, Steve, and I, and I, I want to give a nod to some people on our team. I think the other reason we're similar is we have a very consultative cell. So before you even get in the front door, the people that you're talking to, which could be Brandon, me, others, we have to spend a lot of our time putting on our consulting hats to almost solve for the issue <laughs> before, before we even begin solving for the issue because it's in that clinical state. And as Brandon said, we're trying to ideate and think through what are the myriad of challenges that you're going to have presuming you actually get to launch, presuming you get there, how much do we need to think through and solve for right now and plan Brandon said, right? Could be two years, three years ahead of launch. So that's, that's a little bit different, but but to even get in the front door a lot of times with, with the people that we work with, we're spending a lot of time up front going through heavy details and a lot of work around. Now, tell me about this molecule again. Tell me, tell me about this biologic. Let's really, let's really dive into the details because I can't even give you a thoughtful answer That's around really what to do unless we talk about it in detail. It's really interesting though. It's like in order to get in the front door, you have to already have the answer. It takes a little while. It takes some years to, to have some of the experience to be able to go, oh, I remember that. Like Brandon was saying earlier, like that, that kind of reminds me of like four or five products that I work for. Oh, this, this might look similar to these situations. So you're also trying to always go through your Rolodex in your mind of, situations I've seen, issues I've been in. I don't know if I'm speaking for you, Brandon, but it seems like we you are. have that similar yeah. process that we go through. But, but Rashawn, one thing I want to just kind of pivot off of what you were saying, it, we, we are diagnosing in a lot of ways. We're, we're almost walking through, and a lot of our work is very project oriented. Because again, when you think about the things that, that at least Leaderboard does, there are very much starts and stops, where a lot of times other communications consulting uh, agencies might be more longer term ongoing, if you will. So we have to almost see the finish line before we hear the starting gun. And it's helping clients understand why to start early. It's helping clients understand the benefits of not taking a more riskier approach. Or if you take a riskier approach, making sure you've got the backup strategies that if something either unexpected or anticipated happens, you're not starting a process over again. And I think that's one of the been one of the big things that's made our groups successful. And I think we have the same thing. We 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 do. I mean, I I used to to joke and say to people, if my company has done its job well, you won't need me 
after a certain period of time. Like that's when I've done, done my job well is we're going to part ways as friends because I've, I've gotten the access you need. And there's, there's no reason to keep an access consultancy around, which is a, a little bit anathema. And probably my boss is going to hate that. I say that. <laughs> no, but it, it's actually a great segue to my next question. It's uh, and it is directly about access. How do you, and Rashawn, I imagine that this is uh, primarily a question for you. How do you build market access uh, into, into the early stages of development? And once you've done it, uh, how does it help? You know, mar- market access, theoretically, depending again, back to your question on, you know, what are those key specifics, depending upon disease state, patient population, Brandon referenced rare diseases, for example, you should really be thinking about this as early as phase two, because it's a question of what are you building in and what data are you capturing in your clinical trial designs? Are you actually capturing the information that's needed to present to, you know, in the United States? to a commercial payer, to Medicaid, to, to Medicare, XUS, to, you know, EQIC or some of the other groups, for example, are you capturing that information? So it can start far earlier than a lot of manufacturers think in their mind. And I'm constantly fighting that uphill battle where sometimes they'll say, you know, the most important thing is like, I got to get past FDA or I have to get past EMEA and then I will think about the payers. Um, And my response frequently is, well, you may be too late anyway. If you weren't actively thinking about the information um, that you needed to capture and how we're going to turn that data into a story for payers, we we might have to start a little bit later than is appropriate. Well, this this conversation's been been uh, really enlightening. Uh, it's been it's been informative and it's been fun and it's been highly specific, which is which is a a tough a, a tough trifecta to pull off. But you know, before I let you guys go, I, I just wonder if there's one one thing that you hope a potential client takes away from this conversation. What would that be, Rashawn? You want to go first? I think we've said it, and, and I hate to belabor the point, but. In, in our worlds, start earlier than you even think you need to. It, it, it will likely drive far better results for leaderboard or for 1798. Waiting toward the end is, is not going to get you what you want. That's the one thing I, I would say is don't, don't just so focus on clinical trials or so focus on AOR that you you forget there are a lot of critical steps to actually make your drug successful at the end of the day. Great. So so start early. There's uh there's never any harm in starting early. Anytime and anytime I think to myself, I've got plenty of time, I actually don't. So yes, what's <laughs> uh, to live by Brandon. Uh, do you have a, a different lesson that you'd like people to take away? It's it is different, but I think it complements the start early, which is a lot of these activities, they're actually pointing in the same direction. So I think, you know, years ago, they would be siloed within a company. You would have a group that would do uh, access. You'd have a group that would do naming. A lot of times it's legal. You'd have a group that would do communications, scientific language, pricing, consulting. And now one of the big things I see is when companies take this top-down view and really try and say, Let's make sure we're informing all of these work streams and potentially make them uh, complement each other. They don't have to be done at the same time. They don't even have to be done by the same team, but they shouldn't be held in silos 
because they are a lot of times asking the same questions, pointing in the same direction. And we talked about, you know, the patient, you know, kind of putting the patient in the center. I have to imagine, I have to see it a lot. I see it a lot of times, all of our, a lot of our clients are doing the same thing. So they're really getting better at putting a lot of these work streams in the same view and having different kind of complementary activities going on and informing all of the activities versus keeping them siloed. So start early and make sure membranes are permeable to semi-permeable, right? Mm-hmm. 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 And, and one of the best outcomes from that, Steve, is that when you have the future work streams, if you're collaborating already in the early development, it's going to be, you're going to prepare your partners, whether they're advertising agencies, PR firms, you know, KOLs, even as you're talking about going out and, and building testimonials, you're going to have an organized set of language and message and story that you can tell because you've really woven a, a collaborative team earlier in the process. Mm-hmm. Excellent. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Roshan Blunt, the managing director at 1798. How, how can people get in touch with you to learn more about what your capabilities are? Listen, anybody can call me. <laughs> Any day of the week, any particular time. That's not a problem. Easily accessible via LinkedIn. And, you know, I'm I guess I won't go so far as to get my cell phone on the podcast, though I'm open to it. Steve, you just have to give me a wink and I would do it. Is what I would say. And then the only other point I would make is, you know, to Brandon's point of semi-permeable and permeable, great, great words. You know, we really do like to also operate as one finger paint. And so I, I, I would be reticent, though, even though there are people on my team to not give a nod to, you know, Colleen Carter, who helped lead up that effort that that there is a there is a strength. And if you contact me, I want to get Brandon on the phone or other people from his team on the phone or other members for finger paint on the phone, because, as he said, it's multiple minds thinking of this from different ways actually gets us a, a much better result as, as we're going into this early and really thinking about the opportunities and how, how to move through the commercialization process. That's great. And, and Brandon Cashin from Leaderboard Branding, I assume that you're available too on LinkedIn, but through also through your colleagues at Fingerpaint? I am. And my, my biggest regret in this whole podcast, Steve, is following when Roshan says something, there's no way I can measure up to a follow-up <laughs> to that. So I'm just going to give uh, leaderboardbranding.com is our website address uh, and also on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, I have really nothing else to say. Roshan, drop the mic. That was a good one. <laughs> well, this, this, this has been great. This, is, uh, this has been a lot of fun. And like I said, it, we've hit the trifecta of uh, inform, in, information specificity and entertainment. Uh, so thank you. My thank you very much to my guests, Roshan Blunt and Brandon Cashin from Finger Paint. We'll say it's one finger paint this time. You've been listening to the MMM podcast. I'm Steve Madden, editor in chief of MMM. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day.